It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description on the link tree. This week's episode, The Montreal UFO Incident. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I actually almost felt like uh, I wanted to do this whole episode with like a French accent. Yeah. Just because like the majority of like, the interviews and stuff that I watched, uh, as, you know, like we're all in, you know, in French. Yeah. Just to warn everybody, you're probably going to hear a whole lot of really bad um, French accents on this episode. <laughs> and poor pronunciation of French names. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, before we get started, this was voted upon by our Patreon members. We have three tiers of Patreonage. The first tier will get you early access and after hours. The next tier will get you bonus content. This week we did more sightings from the Yukon region. There was a ton of them. I didn't even have time to cover even half of them. There's a bunch. Oh. And the top tier allows you to vote on next week's topic. All right, well, let's get into it. The Montreal 1990 UFO incident. But to be more specific, because there's actually a ton of stuff in Montreal, as I see. I didn't realize it's apparently a hotspot. There's a bunch. Yep. But this one is at the Place Bonaventure Hotel in downtown Montreal, right smack dab in the middle of one of the biggest cities in Canada. Bunch of witnesses. Yeah, it's a a gigantic structure. In 1967, when it was opened, it was, at the time at least, it was the world's world's, uh, largest commercial building. Now, it wasn't the tallest, but it was 17 stories, you know, and and I think it had, was it 13 point, or I'm sorry, not 13, 3.1 million square feet of, of area. Damn, and it's a it's a giant building, which some people say that this might be the reason why it could be like a, a hot spot of sorts, because of how big the structure is in itself, you know. So, and I've even heard people talk about. There's a couple of blogs uh, that, that I I, I you know, chanced upon while doing the research for this that, that it's not just a UFO hot spot. Um, it's also a, a paranormal hot spot, from right. what I understand. Now. I've seen a couple different people claiming to experience like even stuff like not just UFOs, but like ghosts and stuff too, like like disembodied voices and like uh, knocking on doors and stuff like that. And, and I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't seen uh, the little bit of uh, research that I did uh, as opposed to that. Like, like uh, I didn't see too much evidence for it, but there are people that claim that this is like a hot spot in general, not just UFOs, you know? Yeah, paranormal. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, paranormal hotspot for sure. A lot of weird stuff going on in Montreal. The case we're talking about tonight was uh, went down on November 7th, 1990, and it occurred about 7.30 p.m. to 10 p.m., more or less. So just under three hours, more like two and a half hours. Uh, the, hold on a second. I got, my, I got to put my phone on silent here. Sorry. Apologies. I got a ding, ding, ding. 
I don't know what that is. Yeah, from from Asian Kruger. Oh, is it? I don't know. <laughs> He's uh Yeah, yeah. Oh, whoops. He's like texting us while the actual show is going on. That's funny. All right. So where was I? Oh, yeah. The um, the event happened November 7th, 1990, 7.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. approximately. So we have, this is not one of these, you know, it happened for 10 seconds and that was it. This went on for a long time. and Yeah, it was over three hours, right? Well, yeah, about two and a half hours to three hours. And as yeah. as many as 75 witnesses were on the hotel rooftop at one point or another to witness the event. So we got a bunch of witnesses and it's a hotel. So it's not like we have a, a bunch of people who know each other. It's a UFO party. Yeah, UFO party, right? Oh, how cool would that be, dude? <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> With a pool and yeah. a huge jacuzzi and such, you know, yeah. some beers and everything. Dude, that would be awesome. Oh, man, what a time, dude. What a time. That's yeah, it's... I wish, dude. I wish I could have been there. But yeah, it was so a lot of people, but it was at a hotel and many of the people were guests at the hotel. So they didn't know each other ahead of time necessarily. Whereas if you had a group of friends who were friends since childhood and you had 10 witnesses that all were from the same town and they all knew each other, that would be a lot easier to hoax. But when you have witnesses from all over the place, you have multiple independent witnesses, then that pretty much entirely rules out a hoax. There's no way these people could have corroborated. And even if they did, we do have photographic evidence anyways. So there is that. Yeah, yeah. you have guests, you have hotel employees, you have police, and at some point you have military. Yeah, you got anybody and everybody saw this damn thing. So it's a really exciting case. This is one of the better cases I've looked at, to be honest. I've looked at a lot, and this is probably in the top 10, This at least top 10. This one's really good. Because of oh, yeah. because of just how much evidence there is. Like there's a ton of evidence. It's awesome. There's so much evidence. All right. So this the weather around the time, the weather conditions were the sun set at like 4 30 p.m. The air was clear and cold at sunset, but there was a high humidity, which gradually led to a layer of haze up to several thousand feet. There were sparse clouds between five thousand and eight thousand feet. But as the night went on, there were more clouds and more haze. So the visibility got worse and worse as you went on. At about 7.30 p.m., two witnesses noted that there was a practice fire alert underway 10 city blocks from the Bonaventure Hotel. These witnesses were, so these were, these people were not on the building, but the reason we're mentioning them is because they saw something from a distance, which corroborates what the witnesses on top of the hotel were seeing. So if you have different vantage points around the city, then that makes it less likely that it was a localized optical illusion of some kind. So they noticed that there was some kind of weird fire alert practice going on. And there were a bunch of emergency vehicles like blocking the roads and stuff, and in their part of town, again, about 10 city blocks away from the Bonaventure Hotel. One of the witnesses happened to glance up and saw a small greenish aurora-like light with long streamers extending from it. Both witnesses saw it, and it didn't move during the 30 to 60 seconds that they looked at it. It appeared to be at a very high altitude. Now, whether or not this is connected, we don't know for sure, but what they describe seems like they're looking at, you know, it was in the direction of the Bonaventure Hotel. It looks like it was the same thing, but they were seeing it from a distance. 
Now, the, the Bonaventure Hotel, the full name is the International Hilton Bonaventure Hotel. It was, we're talking about the heated pool level on the roof that's 17 floors up. So this is a fairly tall building. It's not the tallest building by any stretch of the imagination, but it's pretty dang tall. Mm-hmm. All right. Our main event starts when a woman who was an American tourist was swimming in the swimming pool. And you might ask yourself, November in Montreal, swimming pool, but it was a heated pool. So don't worry about that. <laughs> You'd be freezing your butt off, right? It was pretty cold out. <laughs> yep. I think I saw a weather data that said it was like negative one degree or something. I don't know, whatever. It was friggin' cold. It must have been pretty heated then. And and yeah. not only was she up there swimming, but there was a lifeguard. So there must have been other people who were oh, yeah. also swimming under these yeah. conditions, which yeah. is pretty crazy. Well, they don't. Well, it would kind of suck to be that lifeguard because you're just like sitting out there. You're not in the heated pool. You're yeah. sitting out there, presumably either you know under uh, on a stand or you're not in the pool at any rate. Like you're sitting there freezing your tits off. You know. Yeah. It's, I wouldn't want to have been that lifeguard. Yeah. But uh, AG Ether, they can afford to heat their pool in Montreal because they don't have PG and E. But um. Yeah. So. At approximately 7.15, this woman swimming in the pool looked up and saw directly overhead, saw the UFO. It was oval-shaped with a yellowish color, and it had lights coming off of it, beams of light, and it looked metallic. She notified, notified the lifeguard on duty, who in turn notified hotel security. This is a really fun series of events in this hotel. So the guest mm-hmm. sees a UFO, and she thinks huh, that's weird. I don't think that's supposed to be there. She tells the lifeguard who's like, yeah, I see it. What the hell am I supposed to do? It's not drowning. So she calls (laughs) hotel security. The hotel security officer, uh, Albert Sterling arrives on the roof at seven 35. He watches it for a few minutes and he's like, yeah, uh, it's not doing bad, like bad stuff in the hotel. I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) <laughs> he was like awestruck by it. It yeah. was almost like the, this this uh, series of ev- events were like a, it's like a domino effect. Like more and more people kept on like you know coming up to the roof and like what the hell is this, you know? And and, and by the testimonies and the way that people described what they saw, it wasn't. I mean, it, it was something very odd, you know. Right. It was something that like they had never seen before in their lives, and uh, it, it you know it captured their you know, their attention very easily, you know, and like, yeah, it was something that was not easily explained, you know? Right. Yeah. So the security guard gets up and he's like, ah, what do you want me to do with this? I don't know what the hell to do with this. So he calls the police (laughs) at 738 PM. He calls the MUCP, the Montreal urban community police, because he's like, I don't, I'm security guard, dude. I don't know what the hell to do with this. This is weird. And he also called Dorval airport but their line, their phone line was busy. He was not able to get through to them. So the the lifeguard, who we only know, some of these witnesses are anonymous, and we only know the lifeguard as Mrs. LSP. And just for the sake of naming people, I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is actually Lumpy Space Princess. And you'll, if you know what that is, you do. If you don't, you don't. So don't worry about it. You're not a big as big of a nerd as me. So you know, neener neener, I guess. But yeah, so Lumpy Space Princess called the La Presse newspaper, which was 
not that far from the building. I forget exactly how far, but they're fairly close. So they were able to get there. She also told other guests to come outside and look at the strange object. So she must've been running back into the hotel and being like, Hey guys, guys, come on in. And the, so the roof had the pool and other facilities. I'm not sure what other facilities means, but there might be a gym up there. There might be a restaurant or a bar up there. I mean, if I was in charge of the place, I would put a bar or a hotel or a, a bar and or a restaurant up there. Cause come on, dude, you know what I mean? What more do you want? So there's other people milling about and she went and grabbed them and said, Hey, come look at this stuff by seven 35 or so. Um, the object, it was over what, uh, what the security guard said was the Southeast corner of the pool. But given the size of the object, people speculate that really that was just his perception and they're not really sure exactly where it was hovering, but we'll get into its We'll get into more of that later. But so about seven 35, he said it was hovering in the Southeast corner of the pool. And there were about 12 people outside looking at it for an event that started at seven 15 or seven 30. You know, if just a few minutes later, already there's a crowd starting to form at seven 55, the object became brighter and Albert phoned the police again. So he already phoned them once and they're like, yeah, cool, buddy. Cool story. Whatever, you know, kick rocks. Hey, go do your job. We don't care about UFOs. He called him again. He's like, uh, it's doing stuff. It's starting to do stuff. You guys might want to come help. Uh, I'm just security guard. Come on. I, I don't want to do with this man. Come on, help me out. But in a French accent, you know, imagine that, but in a French accent, <laughs> How cool to be if GSP was there, by the way, that'd be badass. Oh, every, like, as soon as I started doing the research for this, like I, I, I was immediately like reminded about GSP's uh, UFO incidents. Right. I mean, there was that, that one time they were driving in a car with, with, um, um, who, who was he with? He, he was with a couple other, uh, I think Rashad Evans was one yep. of them. And, uh, um, what is it? Uh, 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 be, what, I forget is the, um, the manager guy, Ab, Abi, Habib, Abdul, uh, damn it. Abdul Abaziz. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or Ab, Ab, you know, you know what I'm like talking that. about? Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe I forgot his name, but he's like the, he's like the biggest manager in UFC. Probably he's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Well, in mixed martial arts in yeah. general, it's not just the UFC. He, he, he manages a, a, a ton of fighters throughout many organizations but like uh, the the one thing that always kind of like made me laugh was like when uh, George St. Pierre was on the uh, the Joe Rogan podcast and he talked about like how you know sometimes you know uh, I will be uh, asleep in the bed and I will I will look at the clock and then I look up back at the clock and there are multiple hours that has gone by and like I I can't uh, remember what happened you know and it's like <laughs> George St. Pierre are you talking about sleeping. <laughs> Like, did, did did you just go to sleep? Is that what you're talking about? You know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know. But like, yeah, I don't know. I I find it very uh, interesting because yeah, you know, we're we're all into uh, you know UFOs and stuff. You know, into uh, yeah. alien experiences and such. And to to have a that um, successful of a, a mixed martial artist also be into UFOs, I find it interesting. Whether I believe him or not, I don't know. I, hell, I don't know. I mean, well, maybe something happened to him. Yeah, maybe but he didn't, but he saw a UFO and there were other witnesses that also saw it. Like, like you said, like Rashad yeah. Evans, there was, there was a car full of people. I forget everybody who was there, but it wasn't just him and Rashad. It was a bunch of people, which by the way, Rashad Evans, another fucking legend, man. That guy is, that guy is really good. Oh yeah. But yeah, dude, I love me some GSP. If I had, if like, if I go win the lottery, 
the first thing I'm going to do is, you know, contact GSP's people and be like, Hey, how much for, to get him on the show? Because we're not like a big show. So he's not going to just come on. We're going to have to pay him. But how cool would that be, yeah. dude, to get him on to talk about his UFO stuff? That'd be badass, dude. Oh, that'd dude. be epic. Yeah. That'd be epic. Even, even just to get like uh, Angelo, uh, Angelo, <laughs> uh, Overkill Hill. Yeah. Uh, like, like that would be epic. That would be, that would be crazy. Like, yeah. That would, yeah. That'd be the best interview ever, you know? That'd be pretty badass. Yeah. But all right, let's let's get back to Montreal. Let's see here. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So 7.55, the object became brighter, and Albert phoned the police again. At 8 o'clock, a journalist from, from the uh, La Presse named Marcel Laroche arrived on scene to report what he saw. Yes, Agent Ether. Oh, you looked up like you were going to say something. I'm just reviewing the notes. Oh, okay. Cool. Fair I'm enough. I'm following along. <laughs> in right. your narrative. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool beans. Anyways, so Officer Francois Lepe of the MUCP arrived at 8.11 p.m. He said his description was that the object had three yellowish lights, each shining a beam of light. The object was luminous and didn't move. That's his description. And one really interesting detail about the witness descriptions is that they said that the beams of light did not fade out like you would expect them to if they were like, let's say you shine a flashlight through like some fog or something and it's just going to sort of dim gradually. They said the beams of light like just ended like they didn't gradually fade out. They just ended, which is kind of a strange detail. All right. Now several witnesses saw a small aircraft like a Cessna fly under the clouds and under the UFO at some point, we don't have an exact time for this, but let's say it was 8.30 or so. And the witnesses said that the object was much higher than the Cessna. Mr. LaRoche estimated the airplane was at 12,000 feet and said it looked minuscule compared to the UFO. One thing that a researcher looked into, I read a, a report earlier by um, Dr. Haynes, I think it is, and he said... In the report, he talks about the minimum altitude allowed because in the area, they have certain things like buildings, mountain, mountains, antennas, radio towers, you know, just tall stuff that sticks Mount, up. Mountains. Mountains. Well, and also one of the things like some people say, like as an explanation for the event, uh, the sighting, it might have been a, a helicopter that, that was like had lights on under, which to me, from what people have said, like that doesn't make sense because not only is a helicopter not going to be like typically operating at those heights, but it's also not going to be stationary in like one area for that long. It's, it's just not possible for it because, you know, a helicopter will, will like uh, the blades of the helicopter will, will uh, disturb, you know, the air in the area and they can only hover. Helicopters can only hover in a certain spot for so long. And it's not that long. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you that, you know, how long they could, but it's not for, th it's not for two and a half or three hours, you know? Yeah. It probably depends on the model. I don't know that much about specific helicopters, but I've heard that before uh -huh. too, that they can't just hover for two or three hours. But even if they could, helicopters are really, really loud, like really yeah. loud. If you're below yep. one and if it's at 1200 feet, you're going to hear the damn thing. Like, it's not going to be silent. All the witnesses said- Oh, it's going to be obvious. Yeah. All the witnesses said this thing was silent. Yeah. You know when there's a helicopter coming. I've worked at several hospitals and they've all had like airlift programs. 
and you can hear them coming from so far away. And when they start to get close, not even when they're there, but when they're close, everything moves. Like it disturbs the air. And by the time it's on the very top of the building, which again, isn't close to where you are on the ground, it's like whipping your hair around. Yeah. It's super loud. And it's very loud. Yeah, it's very loud. Yeah, I've been there at the hospital when they land on top of, there was one in Southern California where she used to work. And I've been there when a helicopter landed on top of the building. How tall would you say that helipad was up there? Like 100 feet, 150 least, feet, yeah. something? At least 100 to 150 feet at minimum. Right? Well, how, how many stories? I'm not sure. It was, it was a big was a building. building though. Yeah, it was a big and, hospital. And yeah, like she was saying, you can feel the wind and it is loud, like way louder than you think it's going to be, you know, like super loud. Yeah. You hear those helicopters come in and you just get inside because you don't want to be outside when they land. It's just too loud. Yeah. So we have, like I was saying, as far as the altitude goes, there are local laws and ordinances that say the minimum flight uh, height for a Cessna is going to be 1200 feet. So that's the minimum they're allowed to operate at for safety reasons. So they don't run into crap. So 1,200 is the bare minimum, and if it was a Cessna, it was possibly a little higher than that. Uh, I think the I think the Cessnas are allowed to operate between 1,200 and 3,500, something like that. So somewhere in that range. But whatever it was, that gives us sort of a ballpark for where the Cessna was versus the air, versus the UFO, and the witnesses set, definitely saw it pass under the UFO. So that gives us like a little bit of a ballpark to work with if we want to estimate certain things, which I'll get into later on. All right. So Mr. LaRoche estimated the airplane was at 1200 feet and said, it lo- okay, I already read that part. It looked minuscule. Uh, now uh, let's see this guy's name, uh, Beliveau, B-E-L-I-V-E-A-U, Beliveau. I think that's how you would say that. Mm, Beliveau. There is Beliveau. a reason I never took French. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how to pronounce anything in French. Yeah. Beliveau. I think, um, I don't think I mentioned him yet. Did I mention him yet? I don't think so. But he was, he was a journalist on the scene and he received a couple days later, he received a letter from, from Francois Chevafie. So I'll go ahead and spell that out for you. Cause I probably pronounced that wrong. Francois. I'm pretty sure I said that correctly. F R A N C O I S. So Francois, the last name is uh, C H E V R E F I L S. I don't know. How would you say that? I, I wouldn't. Chevafie. I just kind of mumble something. Yeah, I'm just I'm just not going to try. I just kind of mumble something in a, a fake French accent. It's probably close enough, you know? <laughs> so anyways, he received a letter from a friend, we'll call him Francis, <laughs> saying that his friend, Jean, J-E-A, Jean or whatever, J-E-A-N, his friend, Jean, saw the object between 7.30 and 8 o'clock from his small airplane. Jean did not want to be interviewed and may or may not have been the pilot of the small airplane. He did fill fill out a MUFON report, but um, that report is behind a paywall, and I wasn't about to go pay a bunch of money just for one report that probably says exactly what I just read to you. (laughs) You know what I mean? These paywall things, they drive me nuts. There's actually newspaper articles like from the Montreal Gazette. The actual articles, and they're behind a paywall. Yeah. It's, I mean, I understand they got to make money to stay in business, but on the other hand, if I was paying for all that stuff, doing the research on this show, it would 
cost me quite a lot of money. I just don't have that kind of a budget for this stuff. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to do MUFON anyways, because they do have a lot of resources. But the frustrating thing for me is they get their reports from witnesses for free. They don't pay their witnesses anything. And they put that behind a paywall. So they charge money for it. Now, I don't mind uh-huh. paying money for all their documentaries and all their, their journal articles and all that stuff. That's fine. I'll pay for that. But the witness statements should not be behind a paywall because they don't pay for it themselves. It's free. Totally free. But anyways, yep. that's that's a minor gripe. And I'll, I'll probably break down and get them, get a membership eventually because they do have a lot of good stuff on there. But I don't currently have a, a membership, so I didn't have access to that particular report. But the either way... We don't know for sure if this was the pilot in question, but no other pilots have stepped forward claiming to see the UFO, at least not pilots from the air. There is a pilot we'll talk about in a little bit, but he was on top of the hotel, so he doesn't count. But that's probably the pilot who was flying the Cessna. I mean, you can imagine, right? And if you were flying that Cessna, let's say you're doing your thing, you're not really paying much attention, and all of a sudden (laughs) you look up, because you see your your cockpit is being lit up by some strange light, and you look up and you're like, "Holy shit!" You know, right? Well, also because like the, most of the testimony that people gave, like this object was gigantic. Yes, it wasn't just like your your regular you know flying saucer. This thing was huge, you know, and it was also out of because like it's actually, it's kind of startling how like big this might have been like like hearing the testimony from the people that experienced it um because it was very high it, it, i mean it was very it, it was up there in altitude you know and so like like uh for it to still be that big as some people described it has you know as being you know like, it, it's just like now how big was this thing really i mean it, it was obviously a, a gigantic object of some sort you know giving off light and stuff and like, you know, I mean, it, it, it seemed like, like, a, I don't know, it seems like it, it definitely, definitely wasn't like something like a helicopter, like we described earlier, or Aurora Borealis, you know, uh, like it, it was something very substantial. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the reason why you have so many people that experienced it and also were willing to give a testimony too. you know, like a, they definitely saw something that, that just like, you know, it just like they were awestruck at what they saw, you know, like they're just like, what the hell? This is not something natural at all. You know? Yeah. Well, I've actually, I know, uh, well, I wouldn't say I'm friends, but I like to think of them as friends, but more acquainted with certain Canadians that I've spoken with before. And they it's, I get the impression that there's not as much of a stigma in Canada as there is in the States. So I think that it's, I mean, obviously there are some people who do want to remain anonymous, but I don't think it's as big of a deal. Like people are not being completely ostracized or losing their jobs or anything like that to the extent that they do in America. I think the culture is a little different, but uh, that might, I might be Mm -hmm. misinterpreting that. I don't know, but we have a, so we have a comment in the chat here. Mass Gibbs says, Loving the listening from New Zealand, from New Zealand, all the way over, almost on the other side of the world. I'm not sure where the exact other side of the world is, but man, that's just so, so crazy. It's like pretty, pretty interesting. It's exciting that we have people listening from all the way over in New Zealand. That's pretty cool. Uh, loving, yeah. loving the listening from New Zealand on a shitty rainy Saturday. I love the rain. Boo. So, yeah. Dude. I would love to visit New Zealand one day. It's a beautiful area. It's gorgeous here today, though. We had nice 75 degree spring sunny weather. Yeah. 
That's where they made uh, one of my favorite shows, Xena. They made that in New Zealand. (laughs) Oh, the Warrior Princess? Yeah, yeah, pretty good stuff. And that show, it's really campy and it's really really pretty funny because I don't know for sure how they hired their people, but they'll have an episode where they have like a warlord and this is supposed to be taking place in like ancient Greece, but they'll get like one of the native people from New Zealand. So he doesn't look like he's from Greece, you know? Or talk like he's from Greece. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just awesome. But it gives the show like this really unique flavor. Like a flavor, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it's really, it's really kind of an interesting show. But anyway, so continuing the comment. Good to hear you live again. Been a while since I could. Got my 7% Tui beer going. All right. Hell yeah, dude. 7%. That I, sounds good to me. I'm personally having a Pliny the Elder, which is uh, 8%. So, I mean, hey, that'll get her done. You know what I mean? You, you always have to flex on the Pliny, <laughs> don't you? We always have to drop by the uh, local store that carries them on recording night. He's like, I yeah. don't know how this happened. It just well, fell into my cart. How did that get into my cart? I don't know. I have no I'm idea. having a pretty good damn beer myself as well. It's, it's 5.4% alcohol, but it's uh, from College Street Brewery, and it's called Big Blue Van it's like a it's like a blueberry uh, wheat beer, mm-hmm. and it's a it's pretty damn tasty. Sounds yeah, that sounds good. I haven't had that one. I have a question for Mass Gib. All right, I know they do shoeies in Australia. Is that a thing in New Zealand as well, <laughs> or are people in New Zealand uh, maybe a little less psychotic, perhaps a little more cultured and than people in Australia? Equally horrified. Yeah, <laughs> which, you know, um, I get the impression that uh, it's not that I'm talking shit. It's just, I get the impression that Australians have a good sense of humor. So I don't think they'll be offended by me saying that. You also, know what I maybe mean? they're kind of badass. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, you got to be, you got to be pretty something to drink beer out of a shoe. I'll that's tell you that. right. And to live in Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I think part of it is like people spit in it too. Uh. Ugh. From what I understand, that's the that's the uh, the proper way to do it. Yeah, you get a hockaloogie <laughs> in the shoe, and then fill the shoe up with beer, and then you have somebody like Tai Tuivasa, you know. Yeah, you I know, was <laughs> fill. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah. Mm-hmm. This sounds like guy stuff. I can picture a bunch of like college girls out there doing this. I was just gonna say, there's like there's nothing more awesome than watching Tai Tuivasa you know, knock somebody out and then drink beer out of a shoe, dude. There's just something about oh, yeah. it. You know what I mean? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. But all right, let's get back to Montreal. The Montreal UFO. Where was I? Let's see. Okay, so yeah, the airplane. All right, now, at 8.15, a mother and daughter were driving on Champlain Boulevard near the Douglas Hospital. They saw two large white spots of light in the sky and a number of smaller lights surrounding it. They didn't hear any sound, and the lights weren't moving. And this would be in the direction of the Bonaventure Hotel. So once again, we have a corroborating witness who went on record from a distance. So that makes this, again, the sighting makes it less likely that it's some sort of local anomaly specific to the hotel. So it wasn't just the people on the hotel seeing it. It was people all over the place. At 8.20... Officer Lee, L-I-P-P-E, Officer Lipe, how would you say that? Lipe. 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 Officer Lipe. No. I don't know. No, I don't know. Okay, anyways. <laughs> Officer Officer Lip <laughs> called Sergeant Masson for backup, and Sergeant Masson arrived at 8.30. So here we have this chain of events. You got the, the woman tourist that looks up and is like, 
huh, that's not supposed to be there. Lifeguard, lifeguard, that's not supposed to be there. And the lifeguard looks up and goes, huh, yeah, that's not supposed to yeah, be yeah, there. Yeah. I don't know what to yeah, do with that. Lifeguard's like, yeah, yeah. you right. <laughs> Calls the security guard. Security guard comes up and is like, huh, uh, that's not supposed to be there. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, what am I supposed to do with that? Calls the cops. The cops show up. They're like, huh. That's not supposed to be there. I, I don't know what to do with that. Let's call more cops. You know, they call more it sounds cops. Like a, it, it sounds like a scene out of like South Park almost. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? Yeah. Like, like. And they just keep, they just keep calling people the whole time. They just keep calling more and more people like, Hey, I'm here. Yep. It's really here. I don't know what to do. Maybe you should send somebody else, you know, like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like, pretty hilarious. Nobody. Nobody knows what to do. They know that they're seeing something very, you know, uh, um, uh, substantial, but like they don't know what to do. You know, they're yeah. like, what the hell? Like, so I, I would, I, I would be the same way too. Like, I wouldn't know what to do with that. I was like, all yeah. right, we're seeing it, but I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> so Officer Lip called, uh, or no, Officer Lip got there about eight twenty, and Sergeant Masson got there at eight thirty. Masson was overwhelmed by the object and called the RCMP at 844. <laughs> so uh, you've got, you know, the local police calling the region. I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing there's just like, like in the United States, we'll have like the local police and then we'll have like the county police. And usually that's the police department and the sheriff's department. At least that's how it is in California. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's how it is here. So I'm guessing that's what it is. Like the RCMP, the Royal Royal Canadian Mounted Police, those, I'm guessing those are like more regional, less tied to a specific city, I'm guessing, based on this. But anyways, the police called the RCMP at 8.44 p.m. Investigator Luke Morin was assigned to the case. Officer Lip, or Lipe, called the MUCP's district director after this. He's like, ah, still don't know what to do. So he called the district director, Dennis Paré, who called the RCMP for in situ assistance. So we have all these people calling all these people basically in a state of confusion. And then Officer Leap also called the control tower at Dorval Airport at 8.52. He got through this time. And well, the security guard did not get through, but he got through. And the tower said that he was not the first person to call them about the UFO. So that suggests that there's a whole bunch of witnesses that we don't know about or that haven't gone officially on record, as you would expect for a sighting over a major metropolitan area like this. You would expect there to yeah. be a great many number of witnesses. And that's, that may be the reason why that, that phone line was so busy as well. Right, yeah. He asks the tower, but the tower said they did not have the object on radar. Sergeant Latendre of the RCMP also called the airport at around this time and was referred to the flight path department. And it doesn't say, I couldn't find anywhere what else happened there. They probably just gave him the runaround or just told him, oh, <laughs> not ours, you know. LaRoche went, LaRoche is the journalist, went back to his car for a 35 millimeter camera sometime between 830 and 845. So he went all the way downstairs and came all the way back up. At 9 o'clock, Jules Bellevaux and R, I didn't have his first name, just the initial R, Malevaux, um, M-A-I-L-L-O-U-X, Malevaux? Not, Ma Malo? not Malavox, that's for sure. Malo? <laughs> R Malavu? Malo? I don't know. 
apologies to anybody out there who's uh, French <laughs> speaking person uh, who are both also journalists from the La Presse. They arrived at about nine o'clock and also at about nine o'clock, Dennis Paré arrived. Investigator Morin of the RCMP called Major Thompson the commander of military operations of Canada's Department of National Defense to ask him if there were any military operations in the area. He said that there were not. Uh-oh. Doggies. Perer? Is it Perer? Okay, I might have gotten that one wrong. Doggies. I might be, I might be wrong too. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just guessing like, you know, George St. Pierre like, yeah. or Pierre maybe? Maybe it's Pierre. I don't know. It, it's... It's uh, it's all French to me. <laughs> Again, ap- apologies to the the French speakers, and also apology to uh, George Saint Pierre too, which we highly respect. Oh, you know. isn't it? Oh, isn't Dennis? Don't they say Danae? Danae, Paré? Yeah, yeah. I think I, you, you, you I mean, you might be right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I know that from playing um, uh, what's what should we call it? Um, uh, Red Dead Online, right? Oh yeah, Red Dead Two. Yeah, because you and uh, you and Agent Locke are always were always telling me in the game it's not Saint Dennis, it's Saint Denis. I'm like, all right, Saint Denis. Yeah, <laughs> like all right, well, well, riddle me this then: is it is it Dennis the Menace or Denis the Menace? You know, that was my argument. <laughs> well, it depends on which culture is. Yeah. uh you know, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is America. You know what I mean, America. <laughs> yeah, we pronounce things differently here sometimes. <laughs> All right, investigator Morin of the RCMP. Oh, I already said that. Never mind. Between 9 and 9.05, LaRoche took his first photograph. The conditions were not good. It was dark and it was hard to get a good exposure. So because of this, he was not a professional photographer. He was just a, he was a journalist and it was his personal camera. So he called the photographer at La Presse and that photographer told him to place the camera on a bench for stability and use a 30-second manual exposure. So he did this and took a picture with a 30-second manual exposure, and then he took another mm-hmm. picture two to three minutes later. And these are the photographs we have online of the UFO. Now, to be fair, they're not perfect pictures because the conditions were really bad. It was hazy. Yeah, There were some clouds. And the light was not good, so he had to do a, a long time exposure. The camera was probably not a professional quality camera, but the photographs do match what the witnesses are reporting, even if they're not perfect photographs. And yeah. Yeah, go ahead, ETA. Well, I was just saying that the photographs are compelling. Yes. You know, um, and like, like you know, like like what we had talked about. Like uh, some people said, it was a, a helicopter hovering above. You know, like that doesn't look to me in those pictures, at least. It, I, I, that doesn't support that. You know, perspective. You know, yeah. Um, and as far as like also the explanation of like it being like a aurora borealis, like not just the testimony that you know people had given, and it, it's it's not like the. That the, the pictures aren't very clear, but they are compelling. Like it does seem to be a very odd, you know, situation there depicted in the picture. Like if that was a very large structure that was giving off the light that it was giving and such, and also hovering in that area for a very long time. Um, 
I wouldn't have an explanation, like a reasonable one, to be honest, you know, like to, to ex- explain these pictures, you know? Right. And I've taken pictures myself at nighttime just to test out my camera to see how good it looks. And it does not take accurate pictures at night for my cell phone. That's, of course, a digital photograph is going to act very differently than a film photograph. But my point is, is that the photographs, they're not going to be 100% accurate to what the witnesses were seeing in person there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's well, especially when you, especially when you have a bunch of fog involved in or cloud cover involved there as well. Right. It's it's going to make it look different, very different from what the naked eye can see. You know what I mean? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, but that's really good. These are some to me some of the best photos I've seen actually because they do show the lights, you know, and they do show the yeah. haze. They do not look fake. They do not look digitally enhanced or photoshopped or any of this other stuff or airbrushed they look like genuine photos if they were faked somehow they were extraordinarily good fakes you know what i mean but they do match what the witnesses said like i you know what the witnesses reported so that makes them really exciting you can go look at these photos right now and you're looking at the ufo that we're talking about that is very rare very there's very few cases where we have this kind of photographic evidence well, and also the negatives from these photos were also investigated from what I understand. And they were proven to be like, like it, there, there was no manipulation there. Like these photos are actual photos that were taken at the time it was claimed to be. And like they, they, they weren't manipulated, you know? Right. Like, so that, that's, that's pretty important too, I think. Yeah. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily rule out a hoax because you could take a photograph of an object that you're hoaxing, you know, like they do with movies. Right. But I mean, again, because we have so many witnesses and stuff, I I don't think that's the case, but I just want to throw that out there just because, just because the negatives were not altered doesn't mean that it wasn't a hoax photograph necessarily, but I believe 100% that those photographs were genuine. Yeah. I think it's more of a question of what they were saying. Not that it was a hoax, but what they were really seeing. Is there an explanation for it? And and we just don't know what it is. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. At about 9.30, the three La Presse journalists left to go write an article that would appear in the newspaper a day or two. I think yeah, probably. That, yeah, that blew my mind. Yes. Like, it's still there. Something could happen. There's three of you. Right. And you're all going to go. Right. I mean, if that was me, I don't care about deadlines. I don't care about staying up all night. I'm not going anywhere. As long as that thing's there, for better or worse, yep. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to jump in the pool, even if I don't have a bathing suit. I'm I'm in that pool, and I'm getting a beer, and I'm hanging out and watching the UFO. That's it. What's yeah, up, Agent I don't care if I don't have a towel. He needs you. Okay, okay. The cryptid wants to come up into my lap. Okay, come he here. He does. Come. All right, there he goes. There you Okay, there you go. You happy now? Oh, oh. he wants the belly rubs. He, he wants the belly there. rubs. I better do it. Otherwise, he'll bite me and I'll become a wear cryptid. <laughs> <laughs> Will you shrink too? You become like little. Yeah, I'll become real tiny. Yeah. <laughs> Our eight pound dog. All right. Uh, let's see. Where was it? Oh, yeah. The three journalists left, and, which again, it's just what are you guys doing? You know, I don't know. Maybe they're just, they've been reporting on so much stuff murders and crime and politicians, corruption and 
Maybe they're just so jaded that they're like, yeah, whatever, UFO, I don't give a fuck. I got to go to bed, you know? <laughs> More like, I got to make my deadline. My name has to be attached to this story. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, I guess they do have deadlines. They have to get it typed up and submitted by a certain time in order for it to hit the presses to get out for the next morning. Right, right? it's not like they can just yeah. email it Yeah. back then. You know, they couldn't be like, okay, hold on, sending you some photos and I'm typing up my story. Right, right, yeah. So the the Quebec Provincial Police and Canadian Security Intelligence Service also sent people to the scene. And I also saw other really rumors, because I didn't see it substantiated, that the military was there as well. But I'm not 100% sure about that. But basically, (laughs) anybody and everybody was there. At 9.40 p.m., an Air Canada pilot went to the rooftop. He estimated the object was 8,000 to 10,000 feet in altitude. Now, now was he a guest? I'm not sure if he was a guest or not. I didn't see that. Oh, okay. I, I believe he was. Yeah. He, he wasn't flying at the time. For no, sure. no. He was on the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. So probably a guest. Now, his estimate, 8 to 10,000 feet, is a little higher. Uh, most people will estimate this at 6,000 feet or lower, like between 3,500 feet and 6,000 feet. And I suspect that that estimate might be because the object was so friggin' big that it messed with your perception, you know? Like the Grand mm-hmm. Canyon. Yeah. It's the so Grand Canyon of UFOs. If you see something that you're used to seeing, like a 747, and you're a pilot, you look up, you could estimate that fairly accurately. You could tell the difference between 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, whatever. You're going to be able to get pretty close. But an object that you've never seen before, that nobody's ever seen before, and that you don't have any reference for seeing something that size in the sky, you're going to be way off probably. That's that's why I think he was probably way off from other people. And remember, mm-hmm. we do have accurate, well, not accurate, we do have ballparks based on other data. Across the street from the hotel was a 45-story commercial building. It was being built at the time, and they had these really bright construction lights, I guess, to light the work area, I suppose. They were they're on, like floodlights. Yeah, they're like floodlights. They're on cranes. Uh, they had like those big tower cranes and stuff. They're on the building. They had a lot of lights over there. Officer Lippe or Leap or Lip, I don't know. The, he contacted <laughs> the superintendent and asked him to turn off all of the construction lights. And the superintendent, being the awesome individual that they must have been, turned off the lights. Now, this was really, really important because it, they were trying to make sure that the lights weren't somehow reflecting off of clouds and causing this sighting. Because remember, the object was stationary. It was not moving around. It was just hovering there. So it could have very well been the lights from across the street reflecting off of something like a, a cloud layer or the haze layer. But they turn off the lights in the building and the UFO is still there. It doesn't change at all. So that rules out the lights from that particular building. And we're lucky that this officer had the idea to do that. Otherwise, we'd always have the doubt that it could have been somehow those lights, but it wasn't. We know for sure that it Mm -hmm. wasn't those lights. Uh, At 9.45, Officer Lipe called Lieutenant uh, P-R-O-U-L-X. That must be a typo. I don't know. Anyways, he called Lieutenant Pro, Pro to bring him a video camera But by the time that camera arrived, the UFO was already gone, unfortunately. But 
Some people, if you read discussions, are like, yeah, dude, this UFO was here for like three hours and they still didn't really get that many pictures of it. What the hell? What do, what do we need to happen to get a good photo of a UFO? You know, like uh-huh. what more do you need? How much, how much do you need it to be there? But I did see other, uh, I don't want to say reports, but I did see rumors that other witnesses, police officers, and other people did have cameras and were taking photos but those photos are nowhere to be found, suggesting that perhaps they were confiscated by the government, as happens in yeah. many of these cases. So I believe that there is more photographic evidence in this case. We just don't have uh, access to it. Did you see anything yeah, it's been like classified. that? Classified. What? I was looking at the cryptid. He looks so happy. Yeah, he's a happy little guy. No, I did. I just I'm saw. Happy, I just happy, saw happy some, boy. you know, hearsay, some rumors, and the problem when you research sometimes online is that the websites are referencing one another. It's kind of a circular right sort of argument. Like I feel like they all have one source, but then they're all <laughs> citing each other. Yeah. And you're like, where is that one source that you are citing? I saw an awful lot of inaccurate information reading about this one. Yeah. A, a lot of websites that seem to be filling in the gaps, you know? Yeah. <laughs> filling in oh, the yeah. gaps very inaccurately. That's why it's good to go to witness testimonies and things like that because uh, they're not filling in the gaps. They are the people who saw it. You know, they're just telling yeah, you what they saw. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm bum. I, I need a sound effect for that. <laughs> I, don't, I have one on there somewhere. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Officer O'Connor from the MUCP arrived to take photos. I saw that, but we don't have access to those photos. Um, It says in the police report or whatever that he didn't take any because the clouds were too thick. Come on. Come on. You're going to go all the way up to the 17th floor with your camera and you're going to be like, ah, there's clouds. I'm not going to take any pictures. Yeah. Oh, never mind. I don't believe that for an instant. Investigator Morin called the RCMP headquarters at 958 to ask for additional backup in addition to the backup that they've already gotten (laughs) to help solve the mystery, which that indicates that pretty much everybody there is pretty much freaked the fuck out. And they're like, uh, we don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Let's call more people. Maybe they'll know what to do, but you know, it's just, it's just a really funny story because they just keep calling people and the people that get there are like, fuck, I don't know what to do with this, man. Let's call more people. It just keeps yeah. going and going. <laughs> it's well, kind of, and also, yeah. like, the, how much time did this, like, uh, this whole experience happened? Like, how like how long that that structure was in the air, or whatever you want to call it, like, that makes sense, that they reacted the way that they did, because it wasn't just, like, quick a quick experience, you know what I mean? It wasn't just there for five minutes or something like that. You know, it was there for hours, yeah. You know, and, and it makes sense that they would react to it this way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Jean, what the fuck is that? I do not know. I did not put that there. You did not put that there. Who put it there? I do not know. Let's call Bobby. Bobby might know who put it there. <laughs> You're ridiculous. We must contact the new prime minister. Yeah. Call, call the prime minister. Maybe Trudeau. Maybe he knows who put it there. Call him. Trudeau is asleep. <laughs> we cannot call him, and he has not been elected yet anyways. <laughs> I don't the know. The prime minister will not let, let us drink our wine. I have no idea who you the know? prime minister was in 1990. No idea at all. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the current one is Justin Trudeau. I don't know. 
Uh, well, yeah. All right. Well, let's see. Where were we? All right. So they called RCMP headquarters for more backup at 958, but the object disappeared around 10, 10 PM because the clouds became increasingly thick and hid the object. So that's the interesting thing about this is nobody saw it fly off or fly away. The clouds just got too thick for them to see it. And I do have to say, reading that, huh. reading the description and the haze, et cetera, et cetera, does make me wonder if it's an atmospheric phenomenon. Now, right. I do know a witness said that they thought it was metallic. Many witnesses reported oh, yeah. that they a thought it was object. metallic. Yeah. Yes, but I don't think that necessarily rules out an atmosphere phenomena. No, not necessarily. I mean, there are some very rare phenomena, and it's possible that a lenticular cloud combined with a bizarre atmospheric phenomenon could somehow account for this, something that only happens once every thousand years or something, right? Yeah. It's theoretically possible, I suppose, and we can't rule that out. Uh, one, one thing, well, I'll get to, well, I'll talk about it during conclusions. There's, I have a little bit more here to get through. So once the object was no longer visible, people just sort of started to wander off. You know, they left kind of one by one until they were gone. But they left so early. Some like, of what? them, yeah. Are they old? They're like, man, it's past my bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you they're like this, going? They're like, this is cool. I've got my fill. I'm going to go back. Like, I got to take the kids to school in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's a work day. I'd be like, I'm staying here until those clouds go away. I don't care how long it takes. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. If, yeah. I, if I saw something like that in the sky, I would stay there as long as possible. You know, like, right. I would just, I, I, would, I, I, I would definitely want to write it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, just find out. Like, all right. I mean, because once it also, like, once something like that, like, dissipates or, or it goes away, that is a, a, a big tell in itself as well. As far as like what you think you're experiencing. At the same time, you know, we weren't there. Maybe it was just such an overwhelming experience. And after a while, they wanted to just leave and process it. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So a guy named Pierre Pierre Camarton was driving home from work between 1030 and 11. He saw very odd lights, a strange luminous object in a boomerang shape low in the sky at about the level of clouds. He said that the lights were so bright, they illuminated the inside of his car. Now, this is ten between 10.30 and 11. Wow. So this is after they stopped seeing it above the hotel. When That's he, pretty bright. Yeah. When he arrived home, he watched the object hover near the Hydro-Quebec power station. He heard a purring sound and believed the object was a dirigible uh, I looked up, I paid attention to the spelling, Agent ETA. We were discussing this on one of our previous episodes. According, uh -huh. according to what I found, it's spelled D-I-R-I-G-I-B-L-E. So dirigible. Yeah. That's so you, not what it, no, okay. it's dirigible. So you were correct. Diri <laughs> dirigible. No. No. <laughs> uh, so he believed the object was a, uh, was a dirigible with only the You're gondola visible Below the clouds. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> he saw he saw the craft. Hey, whichever comes first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tomato, tomato, you know. He saw the craft for about 10 or 15 minutes. The Longer Point military base had a power outage. This is a military base in the area. They had a power outage between 1108 and 1150. 
and the base gets its power from the Hydro-Quebec station that this witness saw the UFO Mm. hovering over. Pretty weird. Pretty weird stuff. Quite the coincidence. Yeah. So several of the witnesses drew sketches of what they saw. Lumpy Space Princess drew an oval with eight (laughs) lights, all giving off beams. Wait, Wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. We can't just like, you know, pass by that name. What was that name again? <laughs> Lumpy Space Princess. You think that's a a man or a woman? No, that's just the initials. LSP is uh oh, but oh I, okay. That's the only <laughs> that's the only way I can interpret those initials though. That's the I only thought way. little space person, but he's not going for it. No, no way. Lumpy Space Princess. That was the lifeguard, remember? <laughs> so she drew an oval of eight lights. <laughs> all giving off beams. She said it looked like something out of close encounters of the third kind. Mr. Sterling, the security guard sketched the object as well. He described between six and nine bright lights, comparing them to a welding arc. So that, that'd be very bright and probably white light rather than different colors. He thought that the lights were oriented horizontally or on the edge of the object, not vertically, like they were shining out towards the side. He said, something made, it was something artificial, not human. So, I mean, we have, this is pretty, a lot of the witnesses said they saw an actual craft, not just some sort of anomalous lights. There were some differences between the number of lights reported, but you, you can look up these witness sketches online if you want, but... There, there are differences between them, but you can explain this based on the fact that some of the witnesses got there rather late, like at 9.30 or 9.40, when the clouds would have been obscuring more of the object. A lot of the witnesses described the lights on one side of the craft being brighter than another, which could perhaps suggest that the craft is tilted rather than completely horizontal. Uh, uh-huh. it could be the lights on one side are just bigger or brighter than the other. It could be perspective. Yeah. It could be perspective. It could be any number of things, or it could be that whatever this craft was has, you know, like a stealth field that was malfunctioning and it malfunctioned more on one side than the other. I don't know. There's any number of possible wow, explanations. That might be reaching a little. Hey, it's it's not reaching. It's possible. Okay, I'm just saying that's a little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, hey, I'm just throwing a theory. I'm just throwing a theory out there. You, I like more. Of, you don't have to judge. No, no. I like more of the idea, like Hitchhiker's Guide from the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. What was it? The somebody else's problem. Yeah, field? they they just used that. I don't know if he was referencing it, but they were talking about in the most recent UFO hearing, and the guy the guy who said the guy who was talking about arrow specifically said that they're trying to make it somebody else's problem or something and the general commentary is like did he just say that are they really <laughs> admitting that they're trying to basically off put this onto somebody else but i also wondered if he was referencing the hitchhiker's guide because that's in the hitchhiker's guide they say okay you can't really make anything invisible instead they they erect a somebody else's problem field around the object and when you look at it, you ignore it mentally because you perceive it as being somebody else's problem. So you can't see it. <laughs> so I didn't mean, hmm. I don't mean quite, li- I'm kind of like that where each person is perceiving it differently. Yeah. Because it's some sort of not just a camouflage, but a, a mental perception filter. 
Right. So talk about reaching. Now I'm reaching. Well, so not a, it's a, a manipulation of reality, not necessarily yeah. your vision. Right. Well, and right. not only that, different people have different nighttime vision abilities too. So if it if it's really dark out, different people have different sensitivity. People who don't eat carrots are going to see very poorly. <laughs> people who do eat carrots probably see a little bit better at night. Well, I have very poor nighttime vision and I see like auras around lights. Um, if that makes sense, they're not focused. They're not. How often clear. do you eat carrots? Uh, all the time. It's not a carrot <laughs> thing. I just have terrible eyesight. I've been wearing glasses. Well, you might have a carrot deficiency. I don't know if I believe that because I, I, I rarely, <laughs> I rarely eat carrots ever, and I can still see pretty well at nighttime. Like I, I'm, not, I'm not going to say like you know I have night vision or anything like that, but I can see pretty. Pretty I well at night. hate driving at night. Everything's well, just blurry. I wonder if you just process carrots more efficiently, ETA. <laughs> so you only need to eat. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Like when, when I do eat carrots, it's usually like in a, a bowl of like a like, like chicken soup or something like that. I, I definitely enjoy like a steamed carrot or you know something in a soup. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my kids have really good vision. Thank goodness they didn't inherit the poor vision from my side of the family. They got my vision. I have pretty yeah. good vision. Well, they're still young, so no, <laughs> you know, no. By I, the time I was in kindergarten, I was wearing glasses. Like, <clears throat> I oh have, really? Yeah, I have like really bad vision, and theirs is like perfect, just perfect. Yeah. Well, good for them. Yeah, yeah. not so good for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is what it is yeah. at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> All, All right, right. Back so to it. Back to the Montreal UFO sighting. I'm looking at these these drawings that these people did, and especially like the first handful are very similar. They're all very similar. Yeah, they're all very similar. Yeah. They're just they're drawn slightly different because you know, none of the people who drew them are artists. You can tell that. But they're giving a pretty good depiction of what they saw. Right. It looks like yeah. something it looks pretty much like what I draw. I'm not quite <laughs> and right. artists die there be like, well, there's these circles and it's a stick figure, you know, UFO, they kind of you know? look like yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, but they all basically saw beams of light. They saw an oval object, uh, oval metallic object. They saw, you know, the similar number of lights, most of them. One of the witnesses only reported three lights, but you know, again, I already went over why that might, you know, plausible reason for that. But they're all very, very similar. You know, they all reported very similar, very similar stuff. So Pierre Comartin, who saw it while driving, sketched what you would expect if you were seeing the object from an angle, from a distance. He also made a sketch and it looks like the same object, just at an angle. You can, th that sketch is in there as well, Agent Ether, yes, if you want to look at that. I yeah. did see it. Yeah. So that was, DDO. I thought that was pretty cool too, because he probably didn't even meet the other witnesses, so they had zero chance to collude with each other. So I thought that was really cool. And it looks like most people said they were white and yellow. Yeah. Bright white and yellow lights. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about the size. Based on the witness testimony, we have an approximation of angular size because they asked the witnesses, how big was it compared to this object held at arm's length? Like a, like a silver... That's what she said. <laughs> like a loony, I guess, is like their, their dollar coin in Canada. So we have the focal length of the camera, which gives us a little piece of data, the angular size. We have the approximate altitude based on the minimum altitude of the Cessna and the cloud layer and the, the height of the haze layer and stuff like that. 
So we can get a ballpark for the approximate size of this object. Now the object could be anywhere from approximately 1700 feet to 4,500 feet across, depending on what altitude you want to use. Now, 4,500 feet across is about a mile, <laughs> just short of a mile. That's probably like, yeah. I don't know, six, eight, two-thirds of a mile or three-fourths of a mile, something like that. Like That's a big bitch. Yeah, that that is unbelievably big, and it reminds me of the Yukon UFO that we did last time. That oh, is yeah. huge. But even on the smaller end of estimation, 1,700 feet is enormous. We don't have anything that I'm aware of that's anywhere near that big, not even close. The closest thing we have is probably two or 300 feet across, not 1,700. We don't have anything that's even close to that. That is just big. That's crazy big. And you know what's terrible? We're never going to know what it was. It's just, it drives me crazy. Like, this is it. We're talking about history. Yeah. And this is all the evidence we have. This is this is all the speculation we'll have. And so what we really need is a modern UFO sighting over like Los Angeles. And we need it like yesterday. Well, they keep happening. So it's only a matter of time until we get another mass sighting like this, I feel like. I need one right now. Hopefully I'm there when it happens. That would be really cool. But there, so there's one thing that occurred to me. There are, so what do you think? Before I get to that, what do you think the most plausible skeptical explanation is, Agent Ether? Oh, um, military exercise. Nope. Um, that would make sense. <laughs> so this is one that does not make sense. Yes. We're talking about the skeptics here. Okay, skeptics. Um, optical illusion. Any guesses, Agent ETA? I don't know, dude. I mean, I, I don't accept... The uh, explanations, like as far as like it being a helicopter with like uh, lights on the bottom, you know, yeah. like floodlights or something like that. I, I don't accept also the explanation that it might have been Aurora Borealis. There you go. That's the because, one. Um, Aurora, that's what most people say. It's the Aurora that's, Borealis. That's what the skeptics yeah. say. It was the Aurora Borealis. It doesn't sound like it to me. I really want to see an Aurora Borealis. Like that would be amazing. And I would also like to see, you know, something like this that we're describing, but those are two different things. <laughs> well, and the problem, yeah. well, the problem with that theory is we have witnesses who were to the north of this and saw it to the south of them. We have people from the south who saw it to the north. We have people in the hotel who saw it right above them. We have people yeah. from all different angles. We have a location for this thing. We know where it was. We have the airplane witness who saw it above him. We know exactly where this thing was. This was not the Aurora Borealis. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you have people that like uh, w w the, the specific type of Aurora Borealis, I, I don't know the name of it, but like, I know that you have different types that, that they may, because of like your perspective, it may look a certain way. Um, that would ex exclude that because all the different perspectives that we have, you know, yeah. and, and different you know the different people that uh experience this and stuff and to me like I'm, I'm no expert but like you know to me it doesn't sound like this would be the right uh explanation for it you know what i mean uh whatever it was it was something that was definitely not natural and i think most of the people that experienced this and watched it uh i you know they knew that 
when they were watching it, you know, so you can hear that in the testimony too, from, from a lot of these people that experienced it. It just, uh, it wasn't a natural event to me. You know, and that's not the way it sounds like at least, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever it was, it was a extraordinary event. You know, um, the people that had, had witnessed it, it definitely made an impact on them. Uh, you can, you know, and it was, you know, extraordinary. Like I said, it's, it's something very different than your modern day, uh, normal event that you'd ever experience. You know, it was something that was, was just like, uh, out of the ordinary at the very least. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely much, 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 much more than that. Definitely unusual. The one thing that did occur to me is that it could be a terrestrial. So first of all, it could be a terrestrial vehicle based on the fact alone that people who saw it, they didn't report any unusual movements that would uh, go against the known laws of physics. So let's compare this yeah. to another sighting. I don't know if you remember like the Illinois 2000 sighting where people reported these giant triangular shaped craft who would move from a standstill and then in the blink of an eye, they'd be in a completely different location, right? Basically defying our laws of physics. Nobody reported that in this case. So this could be a terrestrial craft, but we don't have anything this big. However, I have read, uh, there, there are old reports or, or I mean, plans. I mean, I found the plans. They said they never built it, but there are also rumors of more recent craft that are basically giant dirigibles designed to carry like a whole battalion at once. We talked about this on the Phoenix lights case. And I think that that's a possibility here that this could be a giant dirigible that uses a stealth technology so that it it's not seen. And let's say that they had some kind of mechanical problems and they were forced to hover in place over this hotel so then they turned on their lights so that airplanes and shit didn't run into them. So that while they were in that mm. spot where they weren't supposed to be, nobody would crash into them and everybody dies. Right. So that's what occurred to me. I was like, that could be that because nobody saw this thing really moving around crazy. They just saw it sitting there. So I think that's a plausible yeah. explanation. I don't know. What do you think? Agent Ether? Well, do you think they actually had people inside of it? I'm just wondering, or do you think they were testing it? I just feel like in these situations, that would mean there were so many people involved. And the more people that are involved in something like this, the harder it is to keep it a secret. And we've mentioned before this kind of dirigible theory. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have to say, if that's true, if, if it were going to be plausible, it would definitely have to be something that was, that was being tested, not something mm -hmm. that's actively being used. Yeah, but that's a it's a new technology and something they're trying to perfect before they well, put it into use. Remember the Phoenix lights were I think were ninety six or ninety seven. Yeah, I think ninety six. I'd have to look that up. It's been a while, but this was in nineteen ninety. So I mean, that's in the ballpark. It could be right. Yeah, but also that's one of the things that I find interesting is people say, "Oh well, nobody can ever keep a secret," but I strongly disagree because. They, yep. they keep a lot of secrets and people who say that they don't understand that people in the military are not normal people, right? These are people who are very willing to keep secrets. They are, yeah. they are patriots. 
they're willing to sacrifice their lives for their country. They're not everyday people. They're exceptional people and they will absolutely yeah. keep secrets. They do keep secrets. Well, and they hold them, they hold themselves to different standards yeah. uh, than the, the regular public, you know, and what they're willing to do and the, the, the morals in which they abide by are, are different, you know? So Dude, I, I don't believe that notion at all. That, there's, that, you know, if there's an entire friggin' airline that flies out of Las Vegas to cart people back and forth to area 51. It's Janet airlines. You can see him there at the airport. If you ever go, keep your eye out for Janet Airlines. That's the airline that takes people to Area 51 back and forth because it's so remote yep. that you can't really commute in. So they just fly people in and out of there. An entire, like multiple planes every day flying in and out of there. How many employees do they have there? Who knows? Could be in the hundreds. We're talking about well, civilians. Just- We're talking about military. We're talking about a butt ton of people. How many yeah. secrets have leaked out of Area 51? Not that many. Well, how many secrets? How many secrets have been kept too? Just like right. not not just in like the the private sector, but also like in the business uh, uh, sector as well. Uh, you talk about like non disclosure agreements. How many people have signed that? Yeah, you know, and and not given up information. You know, there's there's got to be a, a a metric ton of you know information that has not been disclosed because people have signed an agreement not to expose it or you know reveal it. You know. Yeah. Some people are willing to sell out themselves and, you know, whatever they know, but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people, they don't even need the non-disclosure agreement. They have like their personal integrity to where they wouldn't do that. That's not everybody, but I think that's more more people than we think. I've actually had to sign non-disclosure agreements for some some different jobs I've had. I've only had to sign a non-disclosure agreement once. And I can't tell you what it was for. <laughs> but <I'm bummed. laughs> no, but that's true. I see what you did. I, I did sign one once and I won't tell you what it's for because it's more boring than whatever you're imagining right now. <laughs> really not that exciting. But all right, let's wrap it up here with a quote from uh, the report. There's a report online from Dr. Richard Haynes who did, uh, he did some research on this case and he concludes The evidence for the existence of a highly unusual, hovering, silent, large object is indisputable as it has been in other such cases. The present evidence includes the testimony of over 10 reliable adult eyewitnesses and two color photographs. One sketch portrays a round-shaped object with at least six small round lights around its perimeter. Most of the other sketches show a generally circular arc with three or more small lights along its length. What type of physical object could produce this type of image along with linear rays of light? And then he continues a little bit later on. Perhaps of equal importance with the overall scope of the aerial phenomenon was the almost total lack of official response to it. No action of any kind was taken by personnel of the St. Hubert military base after they were notified of the aerial object hovering above the center of the city. As far as is known, they did not even report it to the North American Radar Defense or NORAD Coordination Center. Authorization to use Canadian Defense Forces must come from the premier of the province involved. However, since the phenomenon did not appear to evidence any security threat and the military does not have any clear mandate to study such phenomenon, they did not seek permission from the premier to take action. In short, no one did anything 
uh, beyond some individual efforts by MUCP and RCMP personnel at the Bonaventure Hotel. The object remains unidentified at this time. Now, I do disagree with one of the things he says here. Um, just because it doesn't appear to be the threat, the fact that it's there in the first place is a threat. Look at these weather balloons that we shot down recently. We don't know what they're there for. We don't know why they're there, but they're not ours. And it turned out they were Chinese spy balloons. So if it's not ours and nobody said they were sending it there, it is a threat by default. That is how the military looks at things. So to say that the military would just look at this and shrug and be like, ah, whatever, we don't care. That's bullshit. The military absolutely cares about this kind of stuff, whether or not they admit it, because that mm -hmm. is what they do. You, if you're the military, you cannot allow foreign incursions into your airspace, whether it's terrestrial or otherwise, you cannot allow that because you no longer have a sovereign nation if other entities or nations are allowed to come and go as they please, you know? Yeah. And you have to be at the very least aware of uh, any, any kind of thing like that. And if you can't explain it, then that, I mean, that makes you even more paranoid. I would, I would assume, you know? Yeah. I have another quote here from Robert Robert Masson. He said in a later interview after the event, he said, I'm convinced that I saw something that wasn't made by any inhabitants of this planet. There's no doubt in my mind it came from somewhere somewhere else than Earth. Now that goes to show you just how freaky this thing was to people at the scene. And like I said, I'm not necessarily convinced that this was extraterrestrial, but I do find that quote interesting that a couple of the witnesses actually a couple of the witnesses actually said they thought that it was not from here. They said it was somewhere else, you know? So you have to take that into consideration. I wasn't there. I didn't see it, but they thought it did not look normal at all. All right. And one more little blurb I have here is that Masson, he contacted, like, he contacted the military in addition to the local airport. And the military said that they didn't have anything on radar, but Masson said that he felt like the military was lying to him or hiding some information from him. That's just the impression he got, talk, he got talking to them. So, I mean, that's pretty interesting, you know? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but, you know, just thought it was interesting. Also, I found um, discussion, but not proof that all of the government records of the event were classified within 24 hours. And there's not a whole lot oh, yeah. of official information available on this one, you know? And why why would they do that? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, like why why would they need to classify all the information, the testimonies, like, uh, with the officers involved and stuff like that? Like, if this was something that was, you know, a nothing burger or not a UFO or not something important, whatever it is, you know, then why would they need, feel that necessary? Right. You know, that's that's one of the big red flags I've seen in this in this uh, instance as well. Is like it just it doesn't necessarily make sense that in particular. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much all we got for this episode. We went over a lot of stuff, and I think it's one of the best cases we've done so far. It's a really good case. Unfortunately, this is an audio only format. But if you're listening, do yourself a favor and Google those images. They're not perfect images, but they are very compelling. I love this case. You guys, what do you guys think of this one? 
I wasn't super excited until I saw the photo and I was like, that's a really good photo. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> what was the other case we looked at? It was it was older. It was during the war where there was a, there was a photo. Do you remember? The Battle of Los Angeles? Yeah, the Battle for Los Angeles. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty impressive photo. And this one, that one pales in comparison. This one's way better. Right. This is a really, yeah. really good photo. Like really good. Really good. All right. Anyways, well, let's wrap it up. It's getting late and we are a little bit over time. Like I try to aim for about an hour. We're over that by a little bit. Not a big deal, but let's, yeah, let's go ahead and wrap it up. So thank you everybody so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Keep it strange.